0: So turn with me and look at John chapter 7. We're going to be working our way from 32 through 52, but I want to begin by doing a bit of a review where Jesus is as he makes his way to Jerusalem during the festival of the booze, starting in chapter 25. I mean, verse 25 in chapter 7. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. You know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Then Jesus then said, I will be with you a little while longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? The officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one has ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's pray. Father, please help me this morning to convey your words and your heart for your people. Lord, help me to proclaim your truth to these folks this morning, that they may meet with you, that they may hear you speak, that they may experience your presence. May they be well aware of your love for them as you are talking to them. Lord, I ask that you would, through all our reading and our talking, that you would glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, much has been discussed among the crowds about who Jesus is, and the conversations have literally been all over the place. Just verses 25 through 31, a recap from last week. Some were saying and asking, you know, is is he the one the Pharisees are seeking to kill? Is he the Christ? We know where he comes from. How could someone who comes from Galilee be the Christ? And then others are saying, yes, he, he is the Christ. And others are saying, can anyone do more signs than this man has done? There is much confusion and there is much division among the people. Jesus has clearly stated who he is and where he comes from in verses 28 and 29. You know me and you know where I come from, but, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him and he sent me. Jesus has repeatedly, in the earlier passages, chapters in John, communicated that he has come from heaven, that he has been sent by God. And yet, time and time again, those who are listening fail to grasp what he means and what he is trying to communicate. I have come from God, he has sent me, and you do not know him. And that's why you do not know me. And then the Jews' only recourse is simply just to shut him up. So verse 30, they were seeking to arrest him earlier. In chapter 7, you read that they are seeking to kill him. They want to arrest him, ultimately with the plan to kill him once he is in custody. But God's sovereign plan is that Jesus does have a time to be killed. But it is six months down the road When they are back in Jerusalem, the disciples and Jesus. And it is the feast of the Passover. And that is when he will be crucified. But his time is not come. And he says it here in verse 30. The hour, John says, the hour had not yet come. God in his sovereignty and God's agenda has set the time when Jesus will die And now the problem only gets worse because in verse 31, to the chagrin of the Pharisees, to the Jews, yet many of the people believed in him. Oh, what a turn of events this is and how angry the disciples make these men, how Jesus makes these men angry because he claims to be from God. He claims to come from heaven. He claims to be the Messiah. He claims to be equal with God. And they want to kill him. They want to arrest him. And they want to kill him. In verse 32, John picks up what is happening as Jesus is in Jerusalem during the Feast of Booze. In verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. The crowds, again, there's just this, who is he? Some believe, if not many believe, but yet others don't know. And especially the Pharisees, rulers of the temple, the Jews, they don't get it. And so they want to arrest him. They want to get rid of him. And again, they attempt to arrest him, but they can't. God's plan just won't allow him. I just love it. We're just gonna, we're gonna, they want to arrest him in verse 30. They want to kill him earlier on. They want to arrest him again in verse 32. And they just can't do it. How angry it must make them. They don't understand that he is the word become flesh. And he has come from God. And his words, Jesus' words, he says here in verse 33, I will be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. His words confuse them. But they do more than confuse them. His words literally indict them. And condemn them because they don't believe. When he says, where I am, you cannot come. He is talking to those who are rejecting him rejecting god he is making a statement to them that they still don't get because they are again the confusion comes is he going to go to the dispersions there were jews who were dispersed throughout that area that ancient area and into into greece and he's thinking oh he's just they're going to Jesus is going to the Greeks. He's going to share among them. And and why can't we go there? We can follow him there. They just don't seem to get it. And when he says, where I am, you cannot come. He's not just telling you can't find me. He's saying, you won't go to heaven. You can't enter heaven because you are condemned by your sin. And then he comes to what is the center of this passage, the pinnacle of this passage. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me as the scripture has said out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. This verse The primary function of the verses prior and the verses after are to be a backdrop for this, these three verses right here. This verse is profound because for us, as we read it, we will see it captures the essence of the gospel and its promises to all who believe. It reminds us of Who Jesus is and what Jesus will be doing. Now, in verse 37, a few days have gone by since the temple teaching. So from verse 36 to 37, a a few days have gone by. The festival of the Feast of Booze is seven days long. And this is the great day. Some commentators believe it's the eighth day. Some believe it's the seventh day. But what we do know, it's the last day. It's the last day of the festival. And it's the great day. It's the, the day when everything comes to culmination. Everything comes to a place where the crowds are all gathered together. Jerusalem is crowded. The festival of booths is ending. And for seven days, the high priest, what he has been doing, In this celebration, in this feast of booze, is that he will go to the pool of Siloam with a golden pitcher and he'll dip that pitcher into the pool. And he will come back to the temple. And each day of the temple, he'll pour that water out as the Israelites commemorate, celebrate the time when Moses struck the rock and water flowed from the rock and provided sustenance, water to a thirsty Israel. And the Feast of Booze where they would have palm branches and as the the priest would make his way to the Pool of Siloam, they would have in one hand palm branches in another hand a piece of fruit. And they'd be waving them to the Lord as a thanks and a commemoration for His provision in the wilderness and for their current provision for the harvest and the rain. This is a time when this water ritual was a ritual that turned their attention to the Lord. And as the priest would pour out the water, something we read this morning, he would proclaim from Isaiah 12, with joy you will draw water from the well of salvation. It's during this Last day, the great day of the feast as the celebration concludes and as the huge crowds are gathered that Jesus cries out. He stands up and he cries out if anyone thirsts. Now think about it. This is a dry, arid, and almost waterless land. The natural is water is seriously important in this place. But in the spiritual as well. He cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. These words in view of this natural backdrop and also this ritual of pouring out the water, of God providing water, of the priest proclaiming Isaiah 12.3. Jesus cries out in all of this, where all these people are watching this final day of the ritual and He cries out, I am living water. How stunning. Because at that moment, He's proclaiming, I am God. The one you celebrate, who gave you water out of the rock. The one you praise for providing rain and harvest for you. The one you worship and do a wave offering before. That's me. If anyone thirsts, Come to me. I will give you living water. And if you're his disciples, you certainly are thinking back as John did in John 4 as he's talking to the woman at the well. And he is saying, you don't have to come to this well anymore. I will give you water that will never cease to flow. And Jesus makes it very clear in this passage. He is the fulfillment of all that the feast promises. That's who He is. Leon Morris, in his commentary, said this. He said, at the culmination of the greatest feast of the Jewish year, He unfolds its significance in terms of the life that He came to bring. He takes the water symbolism of the feast and presses it into service as He speaks of the living water that He will bestow. The people are thinking of rain and their, of their bodily need. He turns their attention to the deep need of the soul and the way He would supply it. Verse 40 through 44, Jesus' words fall mostly on deaf ears as the Jews continue muttering and questioning and are confused about his identity. Even after he makes this most profound statement, even after he identifies himself as the one who gives the water that came from the rock. Verse 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people. Some of them wanted to arrest him. There they go again. They They want to arrest him. But no one laid hands on him. I think at this moment, one of the, this is one of the clearest sections of Scripture that helps us understand. Just what we read a few weeks ago in John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus has done signs and wonders. He has proclaimed. He has healed. He has told them who he is he has shown them from the old testament from the scriptures who he is and they still don't know now a few are deeply affected verse 45 and 46 the officers then came to the chief priests and the pharisees who said to them why did you not bring them the the chief priests had sent Temple officers. Now understand who these temple officers are. They're Levites. They're not just common guys. They're Levites. They're trained in scripture. And their role is to serve as temple officers. To guard the faith, so to speak. And so they are sent by the higher up Pharisees to go and arrest Jesus. And so they go to arrest Jesus. And they can't arrest Jesus, And they come back to these guys and the Pharisees say to them, why didn't you bring him? They're they're just perplexed. The officers answered, not because we couldn't find him, not because he resisted, simply because no one ever spoke like him, (laughs) including you. No one ever spoke like him. They They are affected by these words, if anyone thirsts, they know the scriptures. They're well taught. They, they're standing there when Jesus is making this proclamation in the midst of this water ritual. And they're affected. What a controversy this creates. Because now some of their very own are believing Or being drawn to believe. So what happens? Well, they're accused of being deceived and ignorant and accursed. Look at verse 47. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in Him? In other words, have any of us believed in Him? How could you believe in Him? No one else who has any brains has believed that Jesus is the Messiah. And you do? Are you ignorant? Look how they go on to chide them. Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law, they do not know the Bible, they do not know the Scripture, they're ignorant commoners, they're not like us who are well-trained. This ignorant group, they're accursed because they don't know the Scriptures. And guess what? You're like them. In all your training as a Levite, you are like them. The Pharisees see themselves, sadly, as the infallible purveyors of God's word. They arrogantly believe that everyone else is too stupid to know the law and to recognize who Jesus is. Though they think that everybody just are being deceived and that Jesus is a charlatan. He is a madman and to believe that Jesus is really who he says he is. Is to be someone who has no understanding of the law. And that's the accusation here. But the the Pharisees suddenly. They kind of get their comeuppance. Because one of their own makes a comment. Nicodemus. Who had gone to him before. And who was one of them. Said to them. Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Do you get this? In John 3, John records that Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, is known as the teacher of Israel. Not a teacher of Israel. The teacher of Israel. And here is the teacher of Israel saying, wait a minute, let's let's not jump to conclusions about Jesus. He's One of the elite in this crowd. And now he's saying, whoa, take a step back. And so what do the Pharisees do? Do they listen? No. Now they accuse him. Ah, you must come from Galilee, which is a rural, ignorant, commoner place. It's like your pastor who comes from North Carolina. (laughs) kind of like a redneck. That's what you get. And that's what they believe here. That's what they think. And then and then they again just reveal their their ignorance and their arrogance and their hypocrisy because they say to him, "Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee." So what they're saying is, "Look, search the scriptures. Look and see Jesus can't be a prophet. He can't be the Messiah. No prophet comes from Galilee. And yet they don't read their own Bible because where does Jonah come from? Who is a prophet of God? Jonah comes from Galilee. As does Nahum. They don't know the scriptures. They are the ones who are accursed. irony in this situation as john exposes the hypocrisy of these men you know another passage comes to mind first corinthians 126 these pharisees believe they're elite they believe that they're the ones who will only be able to discern who the messiah is And the truth of Scripture. But what does 1 Corinthians one twenty six tell us? For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are So that no human might boast in the presence of God. The Pharisees totally missed it. It was the very people that Jesus was affecting most. That God would be using to shame the wise. To shame the strong. And all of us fit into that 1 Corinthians category of being weak and not powerful Anybody here born of noble birth? We have royalty among us this morning. Anybody? Anybody from England with a noble birth? Ah, somebody from Wales. You a princess? You are in Christ. Yeah, I mean, they don't get it. Now, that is a long introduction to the passage I want to focus on this morning, which is verses 37 through 39. My proposition is simply this. Those who thirst, come, drink, and believe in Christ will receive the promised Holy Spirit. Those who thirst, come, drink, and believe in Christ will receive the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 37 through 39 is for those who are lowly, it is for those who are weak. It is for those who are despised and common. It is for those who are of no noble birth. It is for the thirsty and the hungry who are willing to come, who are willing to drink, and who are willing to believe. That's who this verse is about. It is the, this verse is about those who the Pharisees think are accursed because they're simple. And they're needy. And who has not come to Christ? Who, has, who hasn't been needy? All of us. What is so profound about these verses is that they're not just words that Jesus loudly proclaims in a crowd, but with the heart in which he does it with. He cries out with the heart of a shepherd who loves and cares for his sheep. He expresses the love of God, the Father, towards those who have sinned and rejected Him. He demonstrates the mercy and compassion only possible, only possible through a sovereign and loving God. He calls to those who are thirsty. He calls to those who are willing to come. He calls to those who are willing to drink. He calls to those who are willing to believe. And he makes a promise, a promise that has been given to us throughout Scripture. He says here, whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, Jesus is talking about this body. He doesn't mention just one passage here. He is talking about the whole of Scripture that throughout Israel's history, time and time again, there has been this promise, this covenant that God made, this covenant that God kindly would send His Spirit. And He says, if you do thirst, if you do come, if you do drink, If you do believe in me, I will dwell with you forever. The incredible and inexplicable history of God is this. That he will always dwell with his people. You get that? God is in scripture, has said time and time again throughout the history. From Genesis all the way through Revelation, he has promised to dwell with his people. God dwelled with men in the garden. He dwelled with Adam and Eve. In Genesis, we read that the creator of the universe, dwelling personally with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve hear the sound of God walking in the garden in Genesis 3. A common exp- it was a commonplace experience for them until this day, because they had sinned. And this time, they're avoiding God. They're avoiding the dwelling of God. Sin has entered their hearts. It has destroyed their intimacy with God. No longer will God dwell with them because they are no longer holy and pure, but they have been ruined by evil and the filth of sin. But God made a way. He promised in scripture there would be a day where he would dwell again with the people of God. But until that time, did he abandon? No, he still dwelled with them not just in genesis but god dwelled with israel in a in a cloud and in a pillar of fire god dwelled with them in the tabernacle god dwelled with them through the law god dwelled with them through the prophets who spoke to them god dwelled with them in the temple in the holy of holies god came to dwell with them personally in Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that's the game changer. God sent His Son. And the main point of this passage is the blessings of believing in Him are blessings that come through the promised Holy Spirit. The words of 37-39 through 39 are spoken to a crowd at an ancient festival, but they are words that are being spoken to you today. Look at this. Jesus cries out and says, If anyone thirsts, anyone, whoever comes, whoever comes, oh, and He makes promises in this verse. He promises in 38 and 39 that he will send his spirit. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, the spirit of God, as you see in verse 39, the spirit had not yet been given. It's not that the spirit wasn't active and present, but he had not been given yet to God's people as we see because Calvary is a prelude to Pentecost. We have to have Calvary before we get to Pentecost. And at Pentecost on that day, the promise of God will be fulfilled. Because the Holy Spirit will dwell. God will dwell in His people. Not only did He come to dwell in Jesus Christ, but at Pentecost, the Spirit will dwell in His people. That is one of the most amazing ideas of, in Scripture. That God dwells in people. With all of our struggles in fighting against sin, the thought life that we have that nobody else would know about. The attitudes that we demonstrate at times. The temptations that we give into. The condemnation that we can often feel. The guilt that we experience. And God dwells in us. He promised to send His Spirit. Isaiah 12.3, we read that this morning. Isaiah 44.3, Isaiah 58.11, Ezekiel 36, and Joel 2.28, which is quoted in Acts, that He will pour out His Spirit on us in the last days. Number one, God sends the Spirit. Secondly, He promises here He will give the Spirit to those who believe in Him. Now, again, this won't happen until he's crucified. And then he arises from the dead and he ascends into heaven. But if anyone believes, anyone thirsts, anyone comes, whoever believes, God will give his spirit. God has given his spirit to you. If you have come to faith in Christ... You have God's spirit. Now, if you're here today and you have not yet come to faith in Christ, you have not yet trusted in his finished work on the cross, his death on the cross for our sins, a debt that he paid that we could not pay. If you have yet to put your faith in Christ, oh, my appeal to you today is do so. Come To Christ, if anyone comes, if anyone believes, if anyone thirsts, if anyone drinks. He will give his spirit to you. He will send his spirit. He will give his spirit and he will quench our thirst. John identifies us for us exactly what living water is. In John 4, as he's talking to the woman at the well you don't get the idea exactly what living water is, but here you do. It is the Holy Spirit. It is God's Spirit. The person who comes to Z- Jesus, who thirsts for Him, who wants to drink of Him, who believes in Him, he will receive without measure, as we read in John 3, the Spirit, without measure. God has not only promised His Spirit, He promises His Spirit without measure. And in John 1.16, we read this earlier as we studied this chapter, and from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Brothers and sisters, Jesus cried out these words at a festival in Jerusalem. Over 2,000 years ago. But for your sake. These words were preserved. That you might hear them today. That you might thirst for Christ today. That you might come and drink. That you might believe. That you might have rivers of living water. Flowing out of you in john three thirty four, he tells us that the spirit has been given without measure the holy spirit is ours without measure when we are weak he gives us strength through his spirit when we're weary he refreshes our souls by his spirit when we are broken hearted, he comforts us with his spirit. When we carry a heavy burden, he empowers us with his spirit. When we feel condemned, he encourages us by his spirit. When we go astray, he convicts us with his spirit. And he gives without measure. So what's the application for a passage like this? That God is promising that if you thirst you receive well that's the first thing is that you receive this is not just a passage for unbelievers at that time Ephesians 5:18 Paul tells us that we should be continually filled with his spirit and we should be continually humbly going before the Lord being thirsty thirsting after Him, coming to Him, drinking of Him, of His Spirit, that He has liberally, without measure, grace upon grace, given out to us. We need to receive. But let me, tell you, let me just mention, one of the ways you receive is by primarily spending time with Him. By spending time with Reading Scripture. You've got to come and drink. You've got to... Think about this. If If you were stranded in the desert and you were wandering around for a couple of days and you finally came to an oasis and you saw this pool of water, you wouldn't mystically stand by the water and go, just come. Just... Fill me at this moment. No, you'd stick your face in the water and you would drink. Stick your face in the scriptures and drink. You don't you don't sleep with the Bible and osmosis comes. No, we we live with God. We develop an intimacy with God. We come to Him and we drink. It's how we receive, and it's what empowers us to live for Christ and to draw near to Him. But not only do we receive, I think this passage also inspires, encourages, exhorts us to give. Rivers of living water must flow from our hearts to others. Yesterday was a prime example of watching, and I'm not talking about a car wash because water's going on. I'm talking about rivers of living water as people served our community, as they had conversations with people who drove up and had their cars washed, and they were able to share their lives, and in some cases share the gospel. Rivers of living water flowing out of us. I think this is as good a passage about evangelism as any I can read. This is a clear call for us to extend God's love and grace to a dying world. That lives next door. That we encounter day after day. That living water flows through us. Listen, if this grace of living water is not flowing out of us. It becomes stagnant. It becomes putrid. It becomes lifeless like the water in the dead sea which flows in and does not go out. It just evaporates. Brothers and sisters, oh. On the last day of the feast, the great day Jesus stood up and cried out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Father, I pray. I pray that you would help every person here this morning drink of your spirit. Lord, may they find life in your spirit. May they find life in your scriptures. May they find life as they pray. May they draw near to you. May they no longer thirst. And may they drink without measure all that you've given through the promise of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.